You're about to hear a podcast recorded before our rebrand, so you might hear us mention our previous brand name, We Are Radical, or our original podcast name, The Radicalist. We're still the same show with the same hosts on the same mission. And if you'd like to find out how we got here, you'll find our journey on the stories page of obuinvest.com. It's so exciting to be back in the studio recording the second series of the Radicalist podcast. Can you believe we're here? No, I can't believe you're here. (laughs) But I love it because in the first series, we started to explore the startup stories for women founders and how taking those first steps is so, so important. But now we're at the other end of the scale where we're talking to women founders who are finding investment and funding options for their businesses so that they can scale and take over the world, right? Right, exactly. And for us, it's so important that we put that know-how and understanding about funding in the hands of women and underrepresented entrepreneurs so much earlier in their startup Mm -hmm. journey. And that's why we're here. That's why in this season, we talk to so many entrepreneurs and investors about the role that investment could play in your business. Right, absolutely. And we spent the whole summer running our Over Being Underfunded campaign where we talk about the disparity that just 1% of funding goes to women, even less goes to a woman of colour, and there's no reporting if you are living with a disability. So this is the podcast where we talk about it. I'm Sarah King. And I'm Claire Dunn, and we're the founders of We Are Radical. So let's do it. Let's get started on season two of the Radicalist podcast. In this week's episode, we're talking to Claire Kimeze, who with her sister co-founded Kimeze, a luxury handcrafted eyewear brand. Claire talks so honestly about how it's really important to find an investor that shares your purpose, why a pitch deck is an ongoing process, and how to make first contact with those important investors. So Claire, it's incredible to welcome you to the Radicalist podcast. So firstly, thanks so much for joining us. We would like to jump straight in and for you to explain to our listeners what your business is about, where the inspiration for your business came from and the joy that you are going to bring into the world. So we have a business called Kimezi and we make fashion forward premium handcrafted eyewear but our fit is targeted at black and brown facial features and this is a, a group of facial features namely people normally with a lower and wider bridge and sometimes with a very flat bridge who just haven't been catered for by eyewear companies. So most glasses are made for Caucasian facial features and there's been a a fit for East Asian people since the 80s, since it was recognised that China was a really fast-growing economy and that companies wanted to cater for East Asian consumers. But there seems to have been a conscious decision made by eyewear companies Mm. not to cater to lower, wider bridges. Mm. And is that a global issue? So this isn't just something that is true in the UK globally those features just aren't catered for in glasses design? Certainly in the UK and the US, and yeah. I mean, I think if you... I think what a lot of companies have done is designed for Caucasian features and then marketed them at black consumers, which is sort of doubly naughty, really, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Mm. Are you a a glasses wearer? Yeah, I wear sunglasses, yeah. When did your awareness, I guess, come to the problem, which is these aren't made for faces like mine. This isn't suitable for me. Nobody's thinking about me. Well, I I actually had the realisation when I was watching TV 
So I was watching Westworld and Bernard is a character on Westworld and he just was constantly fiddling with his glasses and they just looked like they didn't fit. And as I was watching, I was also fiddling with my glasses because I do sometimes wear glasses to watch TV. And I thought, oh, maybe this is a thing. And then I went and spoke to my sister and she also had had difficulty buying glasses as I had when we went to mainstream shops. And so then we spoke to friends and family. They'd had issues. And so then we thought, okay, Mm -hmm. well, maybe this is a thing. And we then spoke to a lot of people in the industry. So we spoke to opticians. We spoke to manufacturers. We went to trade fairs. That's when we realized that the industry is aware that people with lower, wider bridges are generally not catered for. But there's various different reasons why people haven't Mm -hmm. done anything about it. And I think... We were approached at an early point when we started our brand awareness campaign by somebody quite senior in the industry. And his view on why it hadn't been done was partly because big companies had, when they pioneered the East Asian fit, had run into problems in America with how they marketed it and calling it an Asian fit. People didn't like that. And so, right. and also there were a lot of misconceptions around the buying power of the black community and mm. whether or not it was a sort of consumer group that was almost worth designing for. We certainly encountered those prejudices quite directly when we went mm. around some of the manufacturers in Italy. And how was that experience for you? Because, you know, what you're saying is the sector were aware of this but have chosen to ignore it. Yeah. Did that act as fuel for you in terms of feeling angry or frustrated? Like, what impact did it have on you in terms of building this business? To be honest, it made us feel quite sad. I mean, yeah. we, the, we sort of went between complete disbelief that yeah. people would actually say some of these things out loud right. mm. to thinking, well, OK, then somebody needs to do it. I think that at each point that along the journey we've kind of felt I can't believe that nobody else is doing this. Right, yeah. And that incredulity sometimes is something that we need to overcome with investors as well because it is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But within the industry, people are much more like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, so an acceptance of, well, this is just how it is. Yeah, but actually when some of the early campaigns to raise awareness came out, we had quite a lot of opticians and people in the industry reaching out and saying this is great this is really needed right. you're you're serving a genuine unmet need and so that was really great as well yeah i know when i first came across your website i was like well how is this not a thing already exactly mm. to your point does it feel like there must be quite a conflict of emotions because on the one hand that's great because you've got an opportunity to do something about it but on the other hand, it's really shit that you've got to do something about yeah. it. Like that that yeah. isn't a pro- that shouldn't be a problem in the world. It shouldn't be an unmet need. No, right, because obviously as a consumer, we all have become very used to having a lot of choice in a lot uh-huh. of different areas. And having choice tells you that you're important. It tells you that you yeah. matter. And so yeah. there is a, a kind of implicit message in the product not existing, which is that as a consumer group, I'd say... Black people are quite undervalued. Mm. Um, But there's been lots of examples of products where people have been addressing these sorts of issues, Mm. be it tights or be it... Yes. Um, ballet, you know, shoes. ballet shoes yeah. or, yeah. Uh, or, or a very wide range of yeah. different things, you know, even femtech. Yes. So, yeah, I suppose it's actually quite recent in a lot of these different areas that a more diverse consumer is being catered for. So in some ways, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Mm. 
So where are you at with your business at the moment? So you have launched your manufacturing, you have beautiful branding. Where are you at the moment with your your business? And so you're looking for investment as well, right? Right. So in terms of the business and the product, as you said, we've launched, we've got product, we've got fantastic branding. We have begun a brand awareness campaign, which is seen as featured in the FT, in the Guardian, in the Metro, and on some other platforms like Chucky Online and and Because Magazine. And we've got some other really exciting features coming up. And that's part of us really just telling people what it is that we're doing. We need yeah. to get the message out there and get the product out there yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's very early days. We went live actually being able to fulfill sort of immediately to consumers a couple of days ago. But mm. the initial kind of feedback has been really good. And we've got some exciting people who've asked if they can, yeah. you know, have a pair of the product and wear the product. So yeah, that's yeah. good. And then yes, we're looking for investment to really scale this and, and get it out there and kind of yeah. Right. Because you manufacture in Italy, yeah. don't you? How did that decision come about? Why Italy? Well, in terms of within the optical industry, there's sort of a hierarchy in terms of where really quality product is made. Okay. okay. And at the top, you've got Italy and Japan. Yeah. Right. And so it was important to us to choose somewhere that was going to make really, really top quality handcrafted product. And that was that was why we chose Italy yeah. as a place to make our glasses and the region where we make them has a really long tradition of making opticals and a real specialism in that area. So Right. And when you first approached manufacturers, did you get any challenge because you are serving, in effect, a new customer group within the sector? Like, did you get any pushback from them? Was that something you had to overcome? Or were they? was their response more, yes, this is brilliant, like, this is great, we can definitely build this product for you? Well, we've been through a few different manufacturers mm. and most of them, even the one before the one that we're currently with, mm. could see the commercial opportunity. So they were like, this is a huge market and nobody's doing it and this is the first for the world and this is amazing. Mm. But then what we really needed was to find a manufacturer who actually was as invested as we were in, in right. really producing a really quality product and... Not all of the manufacturers we were with previously were as invested. They didn't see it as really important in and of itself. Right. What we found is that actually we needed people whose values were aligned with ours yeah, in order yeah. to produce something that we were all going to be really happy with. And thankfully yeah. we found a manufacturer who who yeah. fits that bill. You've launched your product, you're out in market, you're seeking investment at the moment. But did you know that investment was always going to form a part of your growth strategy? I mean, always would be a bit of a stretch, right? Because at the beginning, it wasn't clear where it was, you know, at the yeah. beginning, we were just exploring. But yeah, from a reasonably early point, because we really wanted to make this an aspirational product and to market it in a way that we felt our consumers would really identify with and make them want to be part of our story. And I think that's one of the reasons why this probably may not have been done before is because to sort of manufacture a physical product at scale, mm. you do need investment, mm. unless yes. you're, you know, yeah. I don't know, Carl or Slim or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's significant cost involved, right. isn't there? Yeah. Like yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's interesting hearing you talk about being values aligned with the manufacturer that you're now working with and the fact that, you know, this is a very commercial business and also it's about social impact as well. How important has it been for you as you've been putting your product into market to 
really communicate the story, the insight that has led to this product to find people who are values aligned with what you're doing? And how does that play into now as you start to look for investors as well? I mean, it's been really important because, I mean, we're first and foremost purpose-driven and it's been really Mm. important for us to have a product that is almost better than the price point, if that makes sense. Yeah. In every way, in terms of how we market it, in terms of the product itself, when you the look and the feel of the product and the quality and the craftsmanship that's gone into it. And then in terms of, yeah, our partners and who we want to build this with, they really need to understand that and the fact that it's purpose-driven. We know in the UK that the level of investment that goes to women founders is horrifyingly low. And then to black women founders, it's like 0.24%. That statistic, when we saw that for the first time, it was almost like, hang on, is that right? Let's validate that. That can't be right because it's so dreadful. Mm. And I think, again, it's about, that's a real challenge for founders because you're going out for investment knowing the stats, the figures, the people in that investment world and not looking at businesses like yours. Have you experienced that type of challenge? Definitely. I've experienced... The thing that I find most frustrating is when you you share your deck with someone and then you know that they haven't looked at it. And then they right. come back with a response and say, well, I'm very sorry, but <laughs> your business isn't for us. And you right. go, well, you didn't look at the pitch deck yeah. because I shared it with you on DocSend. So that's yeah. hard because then you you know that people really are not engaging in any way with your business they've made a snap decision not really based on anything yeah Yeah. but all you can do is just move on to the next person and stay positive because we know we've got a fantastic business and we know this has to be done so Mm. and is that what fuels your resilience you talked earlier about being purpose-driven is that what you come back to in those situations when you get those replies and you're like i know you've not looked at it is that what fuels you that sense of this product our business has to exist in the world. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And and also that keeping front and centre of, of mind the fact that these people's opinion doesn't define yeah. you. Yeah. We had a conversation with, a, with a, a mentor and actually an entrepreneur who had been really successful in the early days. Mm. And one of the things he said to us, and he was American, so this was just, it was, it was brilliant. Mm. He said... Just I'm not re- sure if this is going to be brilliant <laughs> or brilliant dreadful. He said, just remember, you're the star. They are the star enabler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and actually, you've got to cling to that because yeah. sometimes the tone of the conversation is like, they're the star. Right. But actually, it's your business. You're the one doing all the work on it. If they can't see it, they're not the right partner for you. Move on. Yeah. Right. And you see, that is exactly that power play, that power dynamic, isn't it? Mm. You And that's such a great metaphor for yeah. it because you are bringing this product into the world. You are the trailblazer. You are the one going up against all of the inequality. And what you're seeking is mm. people who want to be along for the ride and what an incredible ride it's going to be. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Be a part of this story because... You're in the driving seat. You're bringing the new product to market. First in the world, right? I mean, that is... If you're going to put that on a signpost or big (laughs) billboard somewhere, that's what you put on there. What they bring to you is a way to take your product to market, is a way to manufacture, is reach, is network. 
You hope they also bring a whole bag load of enthusiasm and connections for you to reach out to as well. A load of know-how, which is I know how to maybe do this a bit easier or why don't we speed up this process over here? And it's not just the cash, but ultimately you are still the one. You are still the founder of the business that is going to go on and do incredible things in the world. And they can either get on board with that or or not, I guess. And if they don't, then they're definitely not the right partner because right. one of the things that we found is that the energy that we've all got is fantastic and you want someone who's going to kind of yeah. add to that energy, as you just pointed out, Claire, somebody who's going to bring their expertise, bring their network, bring their know-how and together you're yes. going to build something yeah. even better. Yeah. And I have no doubt that person, those people are out there. We've already found some of them because we've already yeah. done a round yeah. and yeah. so for this round, we're just looking to find more people like that. Right. It's investment beyond capital, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's the yeah. people who buy yeah. into the vision and want to play a role in helping you to succeed. Yeah. So we've talked about kind of the inequality that exists in the world of investment and so that there's no doubt, because we often have this, well, you know, is it really that bad? Yes, it is. <laughs> like, let's kind of, let's or, leave. Or, or do women really want investment? Yes. Oh, no. Exactly. No. We'll just bootstrap it for the rest of our days. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, um, the inequality is very much there. As you've stepped into that investment world, are there lessons you feel that you've learned about yourself as a founder? We touched on resilience a little earlier. Is there anything that the process and the experience has taught you about yourself or about your business that you weren't aware of or that's taking you by surprise? I mean, I'm a bit obsessive. So I think that definitely that has come out in a way that, I mean, in my old life, I worked in um, as a fixed income analyst and as an accountant, I didn't feel quite as obsessively devoted to my work as I am now. And yeah, I've, I think what I've learned is you have to try and switch off a little bit because mm. it's all consuming. So the world of investment can feel really closed off. Like there's loads of jargon. There's an established network. There's lots of nepotism. If there were things that you could change about that investment world, what would you love to see done differently? I mean, it would be great if it could be less nepotistic because mm. it is like a sort of semi-feudal system of mm. introduction after introduction and then the next person makes an introduction and then, you know, mm. which yeah. clearly isn't a way to make sure that the best businesses get seen and get funding. It's also quite like the corporate world and that from what I can understand, a lot of people who've raised huge, big amounts at this kind of stage have a champion. You know, they have a sponsor, which again is, is um, well, it's very corporate. Yeah. Um, and lends itself to groupthink and people being afraid of what's different. Yes. So yeah. I think a way to change all of those things would be good, clearly. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk financial forecasts and pitch decks. So these are essential tools for any entrepreneur to have if they're going into investment conversations. And your pitch deck really is a thing of beauty. Oh, thank like, you. It was just fabulous reading through it, not only because of how brilliant your business is and the commercial opportunity for an investor, but just the way the story and the narrative was told through that deck. Are there any lessons that you've learned either with your pitch deck or your financial forecast that you would share with entrepreneurs who are starting to think about investment might be right for me and my business? I mean, on the financial model, I'd say just keep it simple and really make sure that 
Um, you have a very good justification for all of the underlying assumptions that are driving the model and that it's consistent with your overall story and your projections for the longer term. Mm. And then, I mean, on the pitch deck, I mean, ours is it's very kind of you to say that, Sarah, but it's a constant work in progress. And right. from from all of the people that we've spoken to, it seems that there is a kind of accepted format you know the sort of problem solution you know how big is your market and all you know all yes. of those things that you yeah. expect to see in a pitch deck investors are very used to seeing them and so try not to deviate too much from mm. that format because mm. then they're going to think something's missing but yeah i mean we're always working on our pitch deck and but also you know you're going to get a lot of criticism you're going to get positives and negatives and you have to decide what you think about it yeah right a hundred percent it's kind of what's the message that you want to convey through this yeah and completely agree with you our experience was the same around you always kind of go i have created the pitch deck yay <laughs> and then you realize yeah that's not a one and done activity yeah. like there's going to be iteration and you learn the parts of the messaging that land really well that you want to pay more attention to or the bits that maybe people aren't that bothered about so you can strip that out Mm. and there's some nuances in there as well though and we've certainly seen every single piece of feedback maybe from an investor but who isn't investing is then built into the pitch deck and you can end up with this slightly wonky pitch Mm. deck which is a little bit of this and a little bit of that and somebody else's opinion over there but actually unless they've turned up and said and here's some money or here's an introduction or here's a way that I can participate in your business I think equally all of those bits of insights you have to really measure against what's your overall story does it fit with your branding is it tone of voice is that a particular angle or a route that you want to explore further or is that just completely irrelevant because you can end up with 16 different people's opinions on your pitch deck which can equally be really confusing. A hundred percent and of course if somebody hasn't invested in you previously they may well be quite invested in a negative story you know because people always want to justify it was a good decision people don't like to admit they've made a mistake so (laughs) I think completely I think you've got to kind of the people who are sort of invested and on board yeah listen to them first yeah (laughs) yeah yeah right right Um, so if we think about going out into the world with your pitch deck so you've done the forecast you've got the pitch deck you're going out looking for angel investors where have you started? Like, where have you gone to find investors? Well, it's quite early days, but in terms mm. of the angel investors, we have been cold approached by a couple of people, okay. which is really cool on the back of some of the early publicity stuff. But most have been through people, you know, you've met someone and, and they refer you to yes. somebody that they know. Because yeah. angels in particular are, are, it's harder to know who they are. I mean, for obviously mm. VCs, it's a mixed bag how we've come into contact with different people but yeah and what are you looking for beyond just capital so so we've talked about people who are brought into your vision and want to be on that journey with you but are there particular skill sets that you're looking for or sector knowledge what is there beyond capital that you would like what would your ideal investor look like what would they bring I don't want to rule anybody out, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's interested, please yeah. get in touch. <laughs> um, we, I mean, ideally, we would like to have a decent proportion of female investors because I think that's mm. aligned with the way that we operate. And also, obviously, a decent proportion of people of colour as well. Mm. Yeah. Because we've definitely found that our message resonates better with those two groups. Mm. 
So you're going through your second investment round. We know that founders are always really clear about where they're going to make that investment work hard for them. So I'd love to hear from you how you're going to spend that money. What are you going to do next? Okay, so a lot of it is going to go on marketing, really telling people about our company and introducing them to what we're doing and some of the fantastic designs we have and our fantastic concept. We're aware that a lot of people still don't know about us and don't know what we're doing and we're really targeting those consumers that we've identified in the UK and the US. And then the other things would be key hires and further purchase orders because we've done a lot of product development. And so it's really about getting that development out there and really just showing everybody what we've worked on and what we've done and we're really excited to do that. Yeah, yeah. And for anyone who's listening who is thinking, you know, maybe they're already an investor and they're thinking this is really interesting or maybe they've not stepped into the world of investment yet but they're thinking oh maybe I've got network or maybe you could be the first business that they invest in how should they get in touch with you what's Um, the best way well they can email me yeah (laughs) or they can LinkedIn me or they could get in contact with me via you guys just however they want yeah basically so basically (laughs) anyone who's interested get in touch with us radical or directly with you yeah brilliant So just as we think about wrapping up this um, conversation, as you think about your own investment experiences, both the first time around and in this round, what lessons would you share with anybody who's considering going through investment themselves? So I'm going to basically just nick what other people have told me and what Mm. I now see was people tell you advice and you don't necessarily follow it at the beginning, but then obviously after a while you realise, yeah, it was good advice. So... Number one, be organised, treat it like a military operation. Right. Number two, get Streak or a similar platform so you know if people are opening your emails. Yeah. And send your pitch deck out on DocSend so that you know if people are reading your pitch deck. Mm. And then just be resilient. Don't take anything personally. And if people turn you down, just stay open and keep the conversation going because you never know where it might go. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Thank you. It was really lovely to meet you in person, Claire. Oh, it was a real pleasure to meet you both, Claire and Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Really, really nice. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that conversation with Claire was such a good reminder to reach out to the people that inspire you. A couple of months ago, we didn't know anything about Claire or her business. Right, And, and she's so generous with her insight and her experiences. And I think that that wider vision that she has, that global view of what's missing for the world is just so inspiring. And it's huge. Right. It just shows that you can build a business that balances both profit and purpose. In next week's episode, we're talking to Rachel Ketterwell, the founder of Fern and Rosie, who recently appeared on Dragon's Den and whose jams you can find on the shelves of your local supermarket. For more know-how and inspiration on how to start, sustain and scale your business, hit subscribe now so you don't miss an episode.